Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, reported right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. I'm Karima Talar Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Tejo. I'm Sam Andrin. We've got a great pod for you this week. We'll be talking about how the Ford government will be increasing hydro rates by an average of $2.24 per bill this month. We'll be talking about the new long-term care plan issued by the NDP and a new report out from the Financial Accountability Office that shows a projected budget deficit of $37.2 billion for 2021-22 and what this might mean for our politics and public policy. Make sure you stick around to the end of the podcast because you do not want to miss Garima's conversation with Sane Dube and Arjuman Siddiqui, two absolutely amazing experts in health policy to talk about the impact of disaggregated data on policymaking. Uh, there's lots there, so stick around. Uh, one bit of housekeeping before we start. wanted to thank Shireen Gillies for supporting Ontario Loud on Patreon. What rhymes with schmaking a schmodcast and costs money uh, to do? Oh, God. What costs money to do, Chris? Thank you for participating in this pre-scripted bit, Alexi, making a podcast, of course. Uh, this whole thing we do on listener support. So if you like what you're hearing, uh, supporting on Patreon is a cheap uh, and great way to do it. Uh, if you hit patreon.com, which is Ontario Loud, or ontariolaud.ca and hit the Patreon link, you can support us for $2 to $3 to $5 to 10 bucks a month. Uh, every little bit goes a long way to helping us do more research putting us in front of more people um uh, and we really appreciate the folks who've done it already so uh that's enough let's dive in this month we learned uh, from the ontario energy board that hydro rates would be increasing by two percent amounting to about two dollars and 24 cents for the average household per month seemingly breaking a campaign promise to uh, from the forward government to cut hydro rates by 12 percent and a throwback to a time when hydro rates were the biggest issue in ontario politics and indeed the world we thought we should discuss the politics and public policy of this announcement here so uh sam i think you took a, a little bit of a look at this do you mind talking to us a little bit about why why prices are going up Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the Ontario uh, Energy Board lists a few different reasons. Um, the first is that they say that the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in uh, decreased demand in certain sectors, which means that the costs of um, basically energy production are being spread over fewer consumers. And so the price has to go up. Um, second, uh, they indicated that uh, because of the price freeze that was in place from April uh, to November as a result of the COVID pandemic and then pausing uh, time of use pricing, uh, that they have a shortfall that needs to be recovered, which I think surprised some people that that, that decision wasn't being covered by taxpayer dollars, but was instead... Um, uh, a shortfall that need to be made up. So they announced that they would be spreading the collection of that shortfall over two years uh, rather than uh, trying to make it up all at once this year, which they say would have resulted in prices being 1.6% higher. And then finally, they say uh, the result of normal increases in um, the generation costs, particularly of nuclear and hydroelectric generation, and they in particular uh, cite the Darlington refurbishment schedule. Um, so, you know, lots to unpack there, but I hope that's helpful. Absolutely, it is. I will note that Doug Ford's uh, comment is uh, that he hates it, and he blamed the previous Liberal government for high prices being subsidized by the province's books. But uh, the increase will go ahead as scheduled, so he's gotten some criticism for backing down on a, a campaign promise. Um, I must admit, this is giving me some flashbacks of, uh, of of 2018, but hasn't seemed to have had the same impact that it had for the the Wynn government. 
No, partly that's because the government has invested heavily in subsidizing rates. They've invested differently than the liberals did to subsidize rates, but they're still subsidizing the rates substantially. So, so what people are actually paying is not uh, anywhere near what they would have been paying prior to um, the liberal government's fair hydro plan. And in fact, buried in the OEB statement, it talks about how the new uh, uh, rebate that the government introduced last year around this time uh, is increasing to 33.2% from 31.8% of um, the average bill, basically. So uh, they're also jacking up their subsidy even further uh, to offset some of the costs. This this amount would have been even higher if they weren't uh, continuing to ratchet up the sort of subsidy from the tax base. So I will say that I did when I was preparing uh, this last night, I decided to give myself a bit of a background reminder of how we set electricity prices. And I spent all night doing it basically because it is such a complicated system and it was a really good reminder of the degree of control that governments have over this at a policy um and uh you know while i have a bit of it's you know it's it's nice from a schadenfreude perspective to have uh see the foreign government have to acknowledge that there are limits on what the government can do to keep uh, prices under control um i you know uh, I, I think my sort of like hot take on this issue is that we have a system that is set up in place to have people in some way feel uh, have ref- uh, pay a cost that reflects the actual price of producing energy. Uh, there are really dangerous public policy implications to having increasing government subsidy of what it costs for people to consume because that I think is just bad for uh, bad for the planet. I mean, can we just say that this was never the issue that the conservatives were making out to be in the first place. I'm not saying that people can afford all the energy prices that existed across the, the, the province, but that the whole scandal was an inflated scandal uh, from the opposition parties to pin on to Premier Wynne and the Liberal government that they didn't like. And they knew that the reasons that these uh, prices were what they were, uh, were for reasons based on, you know, a lack of investment from the last 20, 30 years from previous governments of all stripes, and that the the rates are on par uh, for the median average with any other jurisdiction in North America, and that all this bullshit was just to throw onto a government that they're trying to take down. And that's why right now no one seems to care about it, even though you know, they've ended time of use, uh, which has now increased the average price uh, for consumers. Um, they're now increasing the rates as opposed to actually cutting the rates. It's all bullshit. It's all political bullshit. And we should call it what it is. And, you know, they didn't like the woman who was in the government at the time. And so they made up more reasons to get people to be angry at them and try to kick them out of office so they could take power. Ooh, I'm sick of it. Testify. I mean, I do think like the conservatives privately concede that they had no plan on how to meet this 12% reduction, right? Um, and I think are planning on people forgetting it and they'll probably get away with it. But the, the, yeah, Alvin's, Alvin's like, as much as I agree with you that a lot of this is political theater to this day, I think I'm a little less charitable about the liberals' handling of this. I think mean, the Fair Hydro Plan was. Uh, a contrived uh, approach to basically mortgage um, the entire, a large part, portion of the system, uh, drive prices up, you know, 10 years out in order to reduce prices close to and sort of hide that cost for a little while. Uh, and that was sketchy. I mean, it, was, it was, always was sketchy. Uh, this this new government came in and basically just made it more transparent, but it's still bad. Uh, and I think the, the as Chris said, the, the long-term sort of takeaway from this is you can't change hydro prices overnight unless you're willing to just pay for them another way. 
There's just there just isn't enough. I'm not saying what we did was right. What I'm saying, what we did was a reaction to their criticism that was all theater in the first place, whereas we should have been justifying the cost and explaining to people that this is what government needs to do. And these are the costs of energy. Yeah. I mean, the polling situation was pretty bad. This was uh, definitely taking the government down. So you're right. There was a failure to respond early enough, perhaps. Maybe that's the big take. Yeah. I mean, aside from the polis- the politics of all of this, which which are important, I would just say that it's important to remember for families that are struggling and being able to afford their their um, electricity bills that you can access the OESP, the Ontario Electricity Support Program, which provides relief to low-income households. So this is just a, a small PSA for, for people that might need relief, especially during COVID times, because while the the politics of this are really real, um, the reality is is that some households, especially in northern and remote communities, are really going to suffer as a result of this. And electricity poverty is a is a huge issue in in many communities, and it's it's um, sometimes you don't see it acutely in urban centers, but you do see it in northern and remote communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, uh, say there's a lot of stuff in the current system that is not on the government books, that is on the baked into the price of the of what consumers pay for electricity. And really, in my mind, um, the only way to really bring down bills in the long term is for the government to invest in things that will bring down bills in the long term, like renewable solutions that might cost quite a bit up front, but will help reduce the cost of production over the long term. Um, This is a system that is meant to pay for itself. And there's no way to quickly fix that by um, subsidizing demand. You need to, I think, you know, make supply more efficient um, is my sort of, uh, you know, as a extreme energy non-policy expert, what was my big takeaway from my night long deep dive last night? Cool. Well, if we, uh, you know, if we haven't had enough flashbacks from uh, hydro prices, uh, we also got a major policy announcement from the NDP this week with the rollout of a plan to overhaul long-term care and home care for seniors. Uh, the plan imagines the dissolution of the semi-private system uh, we have uh, and moving to a totally not-for-profit system that veers away from large institutions and towards smaller care settings. Uh, Grima, you took a look at this plan. Um, what's the NDP? Uh, what does the NDP want to change here? Yeah, thanks, Chris. So the Ontario NDP um, plan entitled Aging Ontarians Deserve the Best contains eight key commitments the party would pursue to overhaul long-term care in Ontario. Uh, This includes a $6 billion capital investment over eight years at about, so that's about $750 million annually. The highlights of the plan include overhauling the system to help people live at home longer staff homes uh, with full-time, well-paid, and well-trained caregivers, clear the wait list, currently at about 38,000 people, and build enough to meet our 2030 needs. And the NDP estimates that we'll need about uh, 50,000 more spaces for seniors um, over the course of the next 10 years. And notably, to make all long-term care public and not not for-profit. So in essence, phasing out uh, for-profit long-term care facilities in the province. 
They will achieve these goals by investing $1 billion in home care over the first four years and create new provincial standards for home care services. PSWs will receive a permanent wage boost of $5 an hour over their pre-pandemic wages. Uh, Wages and benefits will be reviewed and adjusted for other staff in the sector as well. Um, They're also looking to pass the Time to Care Act to require at minimum four hours of hands-on care every day. This legislation was originally tabled in 2016 and was voted down by the government then and by the current government. Um, And they're looking to fast-track projects to meet their 50,000 space target by 2030. Uh, They're looking to do this by providing direct financial supports to municipalities, among other types of investments. And really what I, I think from an accountability perspective, they want to bring back annual comprehensive inspections to make sure that they, and make sure that they are all unannounced and surprises. Yeah, so I'm curious that what we think of this uh, plan, the NDP had uh, has been with this for uh, some time. I think it's the first major policy announcement uh, that I can remember um, in, in a little while. So uh, interesting and timely, um, particularly given the pandemic. Um, I'm curious how, yeah, what do we think of these reforms? Um, I think there was a, a commitment in 2018, that the provincial government would increase long-term care beds by 15,000 over five years. Um, and uh, so, you know, is this, I think, greatly eclipses that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure curious. Yeah, cur- I'm curious what we think. So for starters, I'm not sure that it's necessarily enough money or if it's enough, like enough money to do what they're saying that they're going to do. And uh, sort of not seeing the uh, the details of the plan, whether or not they accounted for the operating increases that um, were going to be associated with this as well. I mean, these are all nice, great things to have. And I would also argue that we should be moving towards uh, significantly more uh, public sector beds available in Ontario. Um, but the plan needs you know, I'm, I'm glad they put this out there so that we can have this discussion and that more people in Ontario can talk about whether or not we need more uh, publicly funded beds. And I think we do. Um, but I think we still need more details in terms of how much this is going to increase the operating costs on on what is already the largest line item um, in the government in Ontario for healthcare. And I know long-term care is a significant thing now, and it's obviously the, the cause of most of the deaths happening around COVID. And when you break that down even further, more of the COVID deaths were happening in for-profit homes by a rate of, I think, two and a half to one compared to uh, uh, public homes. So this is a huge issue there. What do we need to do to those existing homes right now? I would also like to see how do we significantly increase the quality of the uh, for-profit centers right now while we're transitioning to more private spaces, I think is an important piece of the discussion. I'm glad they're bringing it up. I think it's especially timely. If anybody noticed over the weekend, the United Conservative Party of Alberta passed a motion that to their credit, maybe by the skin of their teeth, but they did pass a resolution that they wanted a two tier private public healthcare system in Alberta moving forward uh, to be discussed at the next provincial election. So I think this is going to come up again in provinces like Ontario. And I think we need to uh, continue pushing for more public investment. Yeah, I'd say that like, to add on to that, I appreciate the NDP putting forward uh 
you know, relative to what we've seen so far from all opposition parties, something that does move the needle in terms of a policy debate on an important policy issue. Um, And I think from like a costing estimate, if the current government estimated that 15,000 beds would cost them about $1.7 billion over the course of five years, then 50,000 beds might cost somewhere around 5.6 billion just for the spaces, right? And then there's and then they're they're talking about actually doing the important HR work around supporting um, the wages and benefits provided to PSWs and other care providers, which would, you know, without uh, without a line by line, it's hard to estimate what that might look like. But you know, something like that can actually be done now, um, and doesn't need to wait for an election and a and another government, whether it's you know whether it looks like the current government or not. But we don't need another election to to make some of those important HR uh, changes, which would help strengthen the sector. So I'd say from that perspective, I think it, it really does, for people paying attention, it helps to nuance the conversation. Um, I'd also, you know, I think that there's, there's in thinking of like holistically what's happening, um, moves towards home care is really important to reduce the level of alternative level of care needs in hospitals. Um, but we also know that that requires supports and services outside of PSWs as well. And so that, that requires funding and that requires planning for. And so I, MOF now estimates that by 2046, that the number of seniors in Ontario is almost going to double with um, with um, Eastern Ontario and Southwestern Ontario seeing, uh, I'd say, faster increases in an aging demographic compared to, let's say, Toronto. And so I think we need to be really mindful about how these spaces are, are also spread out. And that is something that, again, I don't think we think um, enough about because it's just, you know, 15,000 or 50,000. We often stick to the quantum without actually thinking about what the spread is going to look like and whether you've got the infrastructure then to to support it. So, yeah, I think a really good start, but requires much more meaningful engagement. Absolutely. My only thought on this one is that, uh, A, yes, I think it's a good thing. And B, I wonder to what degree progressive voters value seeing a full and complete plan in the way that we're, we wish it would be seen. Um, because we know that the cons- conservative government can get elected with paper thin promises. Um, you know, we just finished a discussion on hydro where we talked about their strategy likely being people just forgetting that they promised a 12% reduction. And I think that is likely to be true. Um, and I, I wonder, uh, and I don't have an answer on this one because I, I agree. I, I, if I were putting together a critique paper on this, I would sort of say, you know, if I were writing for the liberals on this, I, I might say, you know, great ideas not properly costed. But, you know, I, I, I wonder in sort of a modern political context if that is something that voters would hold would hold a, a government to account for. I. Will say my my top thought on this though is that I think it's super important and timely to have a plan out on long term care, and I'm glad that they did it. 
All right. Well, our last topic of today, uh, we got our first real large estimate of what the budget deficit might look like at the end of the year, and it is large. Ontario's Financial Accountability Office predicts that $37.2 billion will be the deficit this year, and then a uh, recovery over the next few years um, until the deficit plateaus at about $14 billion ongoing. Now, I should just say before we dive into this, none of us, I think, believe that balancing the budget should be anyone's top priority right now, um, nor should it be anytime soon. Uh, the politics of debt and deficits are very relevant to what might be impacting uh, elections and governments in the next couple of years, though. Um, and it's likely we'll get a lot of public worrying from fiscal conservatives uh, over the issue as we move from the you know emergency stage to the recovery stage of the pandemic. So, uh, Alexi, I'm wondering if you can walk through the report uh, is saying... Uh, but do it from a, but not from a deficit worry perspective, but from a, you know, what, what a progressive uh, view to this as a, as a public policy problem might be. Yeah, happy to. I mean, I'm a little bit affronted that uh, this does not qualify as a full fiscal update, Chris, which would mean that it would come with weird horror movie. <gasps> Did you bring the weird horror movie oh, intro? This is a fiscal update, but the, the <laughs> horror movie stuff got, 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 uh, it, it got bad reviews. So I thought we might do groovier okay all right yeah fiscal update okay all right (laughs) um okay Okay. so anyway uh the (laughs) the fao um puts out these these uh economic and budget outlooks twice a year so this is the first one uh since the spring one uh which was very early in the pandemic so it does a lot of comparing the two and basically we're looking like uh, 2020s will be better than they thought in the spring but worse next year in 2021 uh so instead of a nine percent gdp drop we're now looking at only about 7% for 2020, but instead of getting back almost all of that GDP next year, it's only going to bounce back about 5%. And that difference is worth, of course, billions of dollars in government revenues. So in terms of the deficit, Chris, as you asked, the projection from the FAO is uh, $37 billion, a little bit over that, as you said this year. It's only a billion more than the government's last estimate, though. Um, and so basically, I mean, that's the same because a billion dollars here and there doesn't really mean much these days. And so for reference, the deficit last year uh, was only $8.7 billion. So that was pre-pandemic. We talked about that recently on public accounts. Um, now, this assumes that the government will spend all of the $10 billion or so that it has put aside as a contingency cushion right now, uh, but has not yet allocated specific programs. So the FAO makes it clear if the government was to not spend that, then obviously that could significantly reduce uh, the deficit for this year. And we know this government is quite... So yeah, I mean, that so obviously we'll see, is uh, what happens uh, with that. a really high deficit. But if the economy improves... Um, one of the things that I take from that is that the deficit is tied to the health of the economy and we have a better picture now of what the recovery is going to look like. We're not going to have that V-shape. It's going to be a little bit slower. So as the economy uh, improves, though, the deficit will shrink. So what's the FAO saying about this in the medium term? Great question. So next year, if the economy recovers as projected, uh, the FAO is looking at uh, or projecting a $20 billion deficit. So that's significant improvement on this year. Then a little bit less, $16.5 billion the following year, and then a plateau at about $14 billion for the following three years. Uh, so the good news is that these are better than the projections they had for the spring or that they made in the past this past spring. Um, the deficits uh, reflect a number of different things. So uh, that $14 billion is, you know, $8.5 billion of that or so is sort of the deficit that we had going into this pandemic, which we never got rid of. Uh, then there's sort of lasting fiscal impacts of the pandemic mixed in there, aging population, demographic stuff, um, you know, 
upward pressure on spending as a result of that that kind of thing that the FAO sort of works in. And that's where they come up with the sort of steady $14 billion instead of where we were at, which was a little under $9 billion. Uh, net GDP, debt to GDP also will creep up to about 50% by the end of next year, which is high historically, but quite manageable given the incredibly low cost of borrowing these days. Um, so two caveats or comments that I'll also throw in that I think are important here. Um, there are a lot of assumptions built into this. So, uh, for example, they assume that federal transfers will return to pre-pandemic levels pretty soon, and I personally doubt that, and we can talk more about that in the future. Um, the other thing is that there's this obviously suggests an incredibly false sense of precision. Uh, so, like, they're, they're giving you numbers down to a $100, $100 million level, basically, for deficit five years out. Uh, I think that's kind of crazy. Um, I wish they would do this more as a, a probabilistic kind of uh, uh, report. Uh, and give you some sense of the error bars because they're probably just insanely massive when you get out that far, given the amount of assumptions that they're putting into their model. So that's the other caveat that I'd add. So I have two questions here because it seemed like in the media and what we've been talking about recently was that a lot of the pandemic spending to try and get um, people afloat and keeping businesses afloat was being spent by the federal government. And I saw something that said that 97% of pandemic funding was coming from the Fed. So why is the province doing so poorly in that case if if they're not really doing the spending? Is it just they're getting less revenue? And I guess the yeah. the other piece is that, you know, the we we heard so much from this government uh, from this party about balanced budgets to the point that they actually passed a law that uh, they called the FISTA, the Fiscal Sustainability Transparency Transparency and Accountability Act. I'm going to call it FISTA. That um, requires them to develop and publish a fiscal recovery plan uh, when they are going to bring the budget back to balance. So I I wonder if they regret that right now, and are what are we going to see? Are they actually going to deliver on their you know fall update that they promised uh, would come no later than uh, November fifteenth? Yeah, exactly. Um, so yes, to your first question, the. Uh, the drop in revenues is the major part of the the reason for the huge budget deficit, and that's why you see it uh, improve dramatically next year. Uh, and federal transfers, of course, are part of the additional spending, but but they're offset uh, as expense and as income. Um, I think uh, so. Yeah. So with with all that in mind, one of the things that the report does uh, is publish a sort of a fun table of the sensitivity of the deficit to various policy levers on the revenue and expense side, with the intent of giving the government and sort of the people of Ontario the ability to sort of say, okay, we have $14 billion deficit. The government has to publish some kind of report by law that says, how are we going to get back to balance? What kinds of things might you choose to do to get there? Uh, so I encourage all of our listeners to go check it out. It's table 3-1 in the report. You can uh, put your feet up, gather the family around, play a little game of uh, how would we balance Ontario's budget. Unfortunately, there are only uh, seven levers that are listed, but it does give you a flavor for the kinds of decisions that the government is facing. So I'd be interested in knowing from all of you guys, what uh, what would you guys do to get rid of a $14 billion deficit if you had to by law? So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this uh, th- this chart right now. So I, I might just throw it to the group. If we uh, were you know, brought in the Ontario Lab Consulting team to uh, come up with a uh, plan to balance what what would be the elements of our of our strategy? What what are the, what are the important levers? Is the game what we think they should do as a conservative government, or what we think that they should do from a pure policy perspective? Oh, that's good. Um, I think let's let, let let's go pure policy, but then maybe if you want to throw a little spin as to something <laughs> you think they might 
I think they should take the HST increase. And if they don't, I think the federal government should take it um, because that's huge revenue. And uh, honestly, has anyone noticed the HST going down from 15 to 13 in Ontario? I don't think anyone has. But first step, increase that. We know exactly what it would go to. It's easy. Yeah, I would say for sure. I think an increase in HST uh, is going to be required. It's not a if, it's a when. I think accompanying a, a consumption tax in- increase um, will also require an offset. And so I think governments should think ahead about what a GST rebate looks like alongside an HST increase. Um, I think that, I mean, if I were the federal government, I'd be working with Alberta. I know this is an Ontario podcast, but uh, to figure out what Ontario, what Alberta is doing to also help help um, address their fiscal policy issues because an HST increase can only go so far there because they don't have a provincial sales tax equivalent. Um, and so a GST rebate increase uh, shouldn't vary by province, um, but but it could, um, depending on what the increase then looks like. Um, I also think that increased transfers from the feds are going to be necessary because we cannot, Ontario already spends the least amount of money per, per capita on public services across Canadian jurisdictions. And so um, we're going to need funding to actually pay for um for public services, maintaining them and hopefully strengthening them. And so if the feds and provinces do come to a table to increase the social transfer or health transfer, I would say that it should not be without accountability mechanisms. And so that definitely requires um, strings attached in terms of the quality of the public services provided. And while um, increases in the corporate tax uh, or corporate taxes doesn't yield as much as as one would hope. I I don't think that we should uh, shy away from them, even though I think more conservative governments would be hesitant to do so because um, because of the way that they imagine the economy works. Yeah, so I agree with most of what's been said so far. I think on the politics, I think any level of government, but particularly the federal government could sell an HST increase. Like I think those are, it's normally so politically like toxic, but I think a, I think that the recent income tax cuts that the feds did to the quote unquote middle class, um, create like fiscal room in, in family budgets in that way. And I think you could easily sell it as a COVID increase time limited. And then like, who knows if it actually ever goes away, but I think people have a sense that this is like a wartime, um, you know, once in a generation thing that will come with costs that have to be repaid. So um, I I agree with you that that feels um, almost like an inevitability at some level. I think I agree that especially because the liberals did expenditure restraint for so long and then the conservatives have now been trying to do expenditure expenditure constraint there's really not that much fat left on the bone like you could try to do you know continued 1% wage increases for the foreseeable future or things like that to try to squeeze growth but i think um i think at the end of the day that the path forward for ontario is federal transfers however they um you know 
yet derived their own HST increase and then modest um, expenditure restraint. Uh, and you could you could feasibly get to balance. But as mentioned before, um, given the current global fiscal state, how important it is to get exactly to balance is not abundantly clear. And then the only thing I'll add on the corporate tax is the feds have got to figure out the digital tax of, of the Facebooks, Googles, etc., and move that forward. And I know that that's super geopolitically complex, but um, uh, that to me is an obvious solution on the corporate side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that I remember uh, from when the HST was first proposed, like way back in 2009, was how much work the government had to do at the time to sell that increase and communicate it to the public. I mean, I remember like um, I was involved in like student union politics at the time and like people would like, we had like MPs requesting to come to our events to talk to us about HST because they had a premier's office that was on them to, you know, get out there and make sure that people understood it. One of my large worries about the post COVID uh, the need for post-COVID revenue is that we have a culture of now that is highly individualistic where people haven't really uh, seen significant tax increases for a, a little while. And if the expectation is that we can, you can just kind of come in and turn the taps on, that creates so much room for political and opposition, opposition parties to demonize the tax, which will stimmy public policy and make achieving any degree of financial health, again, much harder. Um, on the uh, conservative side, this often comes up as sort of the straw man argument of, well, you can't tax rich people because rich people will just move their money away. There's some interesting research out of Duke University that shows that um, tax exposure, tax accountability, a culture, and a, uh, an idea. Uh, the imposition of measures that make decisions about tax public and take place within the context of culture um, do make an impact on tax avoidance and corporations who perceive that their tax decisions will be made public make less selfish ones. Um, and I think that if, uh, well, you know, uh, we might not be at the point yet where governments are willing to just create more taxes, they should be laying the seeds of a culture that is open to taxes right now. Because, and now is the time to do it because people are in an emergency mode. Um, because if, you know, if, if the economy gets on its feet a little bit again, people start making money and we haven't done that work. Um, I just see this task as being so much harder. So my actually bit of advice was would be to not worry as much about the policy lever, but to start thinking about culture and how we create a culture of collective shared sacrifice. So for those following along at home, which I know everybody has their chart out and is uh, keeping track, it sounds like, uh, because you may not be able to read this, a 1% increase in the HST rate would be about $4.6 billion um, by the 2025-26 year. So a couple percent there, plus uh, you get another billion from a 1% increase in the annual growth of the Canada Health Transfer, which it sounds like we're all saying the feds need to chip in. Plus, uh, we're talking about maybe 1% or 2% on the corporate tax rate, it sounds like, which makes sense to me as well. Uh, the, the Liberals cut the rate in Ontario and uh, didn't see much gain from that um, economically. And so it, it would stand to reason that increasing that back up would make sense. Um, that's a $1.2 billion per 1% increase there as well. So we're starting to get up into that sort of 10 to $14 billion range just with those things. So I think we've done a, a good job, guys. 
Well, uh, I'll, I'll keep this part of it. I'll send it to the premier's office. I'll be like, hey, we got you covered. Here's your plan. <laughs> All right, friends. Uh, I think I, I think that's good. I think that's where we'll leave it. Welcome back. The reality that inequities exist in our society are irrefutable. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us in real time and with consequences that the health, economic, and social impacts of the pandemic have been unequally borne by racialized people, women, people living in poverty, and people with disabilities. For example, recent analysis by Matheson and Van Engen for HowsMyFlattening.ca shows that the rate of new COVID-19 cases by neighborhood are higher in communities with a higher visible minority population. While some may just shrug their shoulders when they hear about this, there's simply nothing inevitable about the inequities that we see in our society. We have to address the nascent and overt ways in which anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism play out in our society. We have to address the ways in which sexism and ableism play out in our society. And we have to address the fact that lower wage workers have been disproportionately affected by the economic downturn. Given the intersections between marginalization, racism, sexism, and health outcomes, responding to these inequities can take various forms. From a policy perspective, we need good sociodemographic data. If we have better data by race, gender, and income, for example, the hope is that we will inform good policymaking. While the collection of health and economic data based on sex has been part of the research policy continuum, we haven't had the same type of data by race. Calls for the collection of race-based data have intensified over the past couple of months with civil society advocates, frontline service providers, and academics leading the charge. I am so honored to host this discussion on disaggregated data, COVID-19, and policy change. With me, I have Sane Dube, Policy and Government Relations Lead at the Alliance for Healthier Communities, and Dr. Arjman Siddiqui, Canada Research Chair in Population Health Equity and Associate Prof Professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Sane and Arjman, welcome to the pod. How are you both? Hi. Hi, Garuma. Uh, excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Super excited to have you. And you both have a lot of experience in this area and so want to just dive right in if that's okay with you. First things first, from your perspective and for the sake of our listeners, what is disaggregated data and why are you asking for the collection of it? So uh, disaggregated data is one way to... Um, sort of describe the fact that it's useful to know when we have any um, health outcome, for instance, COVID-19. So let's say we have information on COVID cases, people, people who have been diagnosed with, case, uh, with COVID. Um, disaggregated data means that we would essentially um, take that data, uh, especially when it's sort of grouped at the neighborhood level or at some level, and and essentially parse it into 
um, different types of indicators. So disaggregated data may mean that what we do is we take data uh, on COVID cases and describe how it's different by age, by sex, by race, and so on. So the disaggregation can actually be about um, splitting apart data that's been grouped uh, at some level. So maybe it's been grouped by neighborhood or by uh, health region uh, and split it into um, characteristics of people within that group. Or it may be just that you have some sort of average uh, indicator of, of, a, of a health outcome, for example, and you, and you parse that into people's characteristics. Yeah, and so I would agree with um, everything Ajman has said. I think that when people ask what disaggregated data is, I often say that um, we have to understand that with any health condition, nothing affects us the same way. So disaggregated data will help us to understand how factors like your race, your household income, your sex, how all of those things either help you to maintain good wealth, good health, or they're barriers to, uh, to you actually achieving good health. Um, and I think Ajman is right in, in, in saying that, particularly in, in situations where we have pandemics like COVID, um, it's helpful to know exactly who is being impacted and how they're being affected. Um, and we can only do that, uh, really, when we have data that breaks down, that goes just beyond, this is the number of people that were affected, um, but that goes deeper and says that this is where those people live, this is what race they are, this is the type of job that they do. Thanks, Arjuman and Sane. That's really helpful. So I want to play that back a little bit to you. And and what you're saying is, is that the collection of disaggregated data can help us better understand the realities that different groups of people are experiencing and whether we parse that out by race or sex or community. It helps us to... I'm, I'm hoping eventually inform the types of public policies and programs that we develop to help um, to help change that if if the realities experienced by people are are in any ways reflective of inequalities or inequities. Um, for some people, though, that there might be this idea that we've we've got some of this data already or are starting to collect it. Could you provide an example of what this type of information or what the collection of this data would look like in real time for somebody? Say they were, I don't know, um, whether they were accessing a hospital for some some sort of care or community health clinic, uh, what would this data collection look like? Or is it at the macro level and more at the survey level that you're thinking? Uh, so I think that I would say that um, in terms of when you're thinking about this for policy at the policy level and how it impacts decision making, you you're usually looking at much more of a macro level. So I'll give the example of um, Ontario's COVID response um, and with the uh, an example of the vulnerable people strategy, which came out in April. And this was a strategy that looked at. Um, uh, interventions or COVID responses that needed to be put in place for people who uh, live in congregate care settings, uh, people who are uh, in high-risk um, environments. So, for example, people who are in prisons, uh, people who are in group homes, 
Um, so it was a strategy that really looked at how can we better support these communities as they respond to COVID. Um, and part of how they knew that they needed to have a targeted response was that they had collected data on who COVID was impacting. So they knew that there was a higher risk or there was more transmission of COVID happening in those settings. Um, and so then that led to macro decision making at a policy level that said that we then need a targeted strategy. We need resources to come um, that will go from the government directly to this type of strategy. So I would say that that's how I'm answering it. Um, but of course, there are implications for, as you said, an ordinary person walking into a hospital and what is asked of them. But at the policy level, we tend to look at um, what is the data telling us as a story overall. Um, of the province. I don't know, Arjman, what, what you would add to that. Yeah, not much, Sani. I think that that um, does a nice job of talking about it. I would just say maybe from the perspective of someone walking into a hospital or something, what you might see is somebody filling out forms the way they routinely do now that not only ask their age, but ask them other characteristics. It could be their uh, race, it could be their education, their income level. So essentially, it doesn't look very different than what already happens when you access those spaces in that people are already routinely asking you a variety of questions. It's just that the kinds of questions they're asking you about yourself um, will uh, uh, sort of be expanded so that we get some of these key social indicators that are linked to our health status that we're not currently asking of people. And then when we get that data from individuals and we get it for a lot of individuals, then uh, what ends up happening is, as Sane says, then we can use that information at the policy level to figure out across the people who are accessing these places across the people who have uh, had to interact with the healthcare system and so on, what are what is the distribution of people who are, uh, you know, uh, uh, of various characteristic, different ages, different sexes, different genders, different racial groups, and so on. So it starts to give us a picture of the patterns at the population level. Yeah, and I guess, so, you know, sometimes I think about that, the reality that inequities that we see in health um, are reflections of discrimination and inequities that take place in other areas of of our society, be it the labor market, be it education. And so I wonder from your perspective, if we think of the policy advocacy trajectory, um, if this type of data were collected and were meaningfully and effectively uh, collected, um, what kind of what kind of policy change do you think it could inform? Is it do you think that it's limited to policy change inside a certain field like health, or do you think that that the lessons that we learned there can be extended to other areas that inform the determinants of health? So. My sense actually is probably not something that people want to hear, and that is that I don't think there actually is a necessary link between collecting the data and seeing policy change. We hope that that's what happens, and Garima, I think you said that um, in the introduction, that that is the hope. Um, unfortunately, I don't see that that happens very often. So for me, the fundamental premise about policy change in relation to the data is questionable. 
Uh, it's it's a hope, but it's not really something we we can rely on. I actually think we need the data just so that we have a public record of the truth. I think that even mm-hmm. if it doesn't relate to policy change, we need to know what's happening in our society uh, so that we can, you know, sort of reflect on it in different ways and hopefully, uh, yes, use it for policy change. But I, I don't hold much hope for that, uh, to be honest. In terms of what kinds of policies might be sort of moved, there's kind of two ways to think about this. One is that you can imagine if people who are involved in policymaking across a variety of uh, spheres of life uh, and, and intersecting spheres like health, income, jobs, etc., all are privy to the data and can see those intersections, then indeed you might see some spillover into other areas. But I would say there's a second piece to that, which is that I think we have to be very careful with the data and figure out precisely what kinds of policies the data is pointing to and whether we can really be sure about what the data is telling us. So it's not enough, for example, just to have a raw indication of, for example, uh, uh, income inequalities in, in, say, COVID, and think then only about income policies, that there are a variety of underlying issues that uh, the data may be pointing to. So we just have to be, I think, a little bit careful in uh, both being precise, but also thinking very broadly about what key indicators actually are pointing to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think that um, what I, I'm i thinking about a lot listening to you speak, Ajman, is just the idea that having the data doesn't necessarily mean that it improves people's lives, right? Um, yeah. So even if you look at COVID and what's happened in Toronto's Northwest, we know that the structural inequities that exist mean that COVID was going to be terrible in Toronto's Northwest. And this is not, we didn't need necessarily the data that's being collected over COVID to tell us that this was going to be bad because we have been seeing um, so many things that have led up to this in the years before. Um, But that's not to say that uh, the collection of data doesn't always lead to good policies. Um, I'll give the example of uh, uh, in uh, British Columbia, uh, in response to the overdose crisis, um, and in response to an increase in the overdose crisis over over the course of COVID, in BC, they actually looked at the data to see what was happening with those overdoses. And then they made changes at a policy level um, in terms of uh, granting exemptions to nurses so that they could prescribe safer supply so that that would reduce the number of people who are dying. Um, And they've done a few other things like extend uh, safer supply. And all of that really began because they looked at the data that was coming out of COVID that was showing an increase um, in in, uh, uh, the number of people who are dying. So sometimes uh, data really does help us to make good policy. Uh, But then as Arjman said, you have to have the people who can make those links because just having the numbers is not enough. You have to have someone who can draw the links that say, okay, this is what we're seeing. This is the response that we need. This is how resources in the system need to be redirected. Um, and so it's, it's a multifaceted thing that has to happen for that data to actually be useful. Uh, that, that entire segment just uh, really caused me to pause because as somebody that's 
I guess, obsessive about policy change. Um, the idea that the collection of of data isn't isn't a means to an end in itself. I mean, it can be used for policy change, and it and to get there, we need the right people to communicate what it, it what is happening. By and large, the pillar of the of what the collection of such data does is it, it provides us a reflection of the truth or, or, you know, just, a, just, um, an understanding of what is happening in real time, um, for communities across the province and across the country. And so with that, um, and sort of thinking about the, the different ways in which, uh, such data could be used and what its purpose is. I'm wondering what are the considerations that need to be taken into account when we talk about both the collection of disaggregated data and the use of such data and whether there are ethical issues that we need to be thinking about uh, when we talk about um, when we talk about this issue. I think that I would start by saying that um, the most important thing to understand is that this data collection does not happen in a vacuum. It happens in a world where we know that things like anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism exist, and that those are part of the systems and structures that govern our everyday life. So the, the collection of data in itself is not, um, it's not a way that we address those issues. So it's very possible for the collection of data itself to also be something that causes harm to communities that already are facing a tremendous amount of marginalization. Um, Arjman and I are working with a group uh, that is uh, looking at uh, ownership and uh, governance for Black people's data. Um, so this is something that we've learned uh, from colleagues, uh, Indigenous colleagues who, who have uh, established their own principles around how data is collected. Um, and so there are issues that can pop up around how that data is, uh, who has access to it, how it's governed, how it's uh, protected, um, how it's used. Uh, these are all issues. These are all places where there's always a risk that the same issues that we, we see, um, the systemic and structural issues will rear up and show their head again. Um, sorry, there's just, there's, there's a lot to absorb in there. And um, I know that that many communities, advocates, academics have been calling for this type of data and the collection of this type of data um, for decades. And with the COVID-19 crisis, it's, it's, it's come, become top of mind for mainstream media and for the general public. And so now that I'd like to think that uh, that the general population is paying attention to to the issue of the collection of disaggregated data. Um, where do you think we go from here? Are we at a moment that that allows us to to really create some progress in this space, or do you think that we've got some more work to do around laying the groundwork around? around the purpose, around the ethical use, around the types of questions that we might want to ask when we're collecting disaggregated data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it's, and it's important to, to remember that the people are not unanimous or they're, they're not um, necessarily on the same page 
um, about this data collection. And people, of course, are very concerned about the potential harm. Um, there's also people who are concerned about the, uh, or, or people who advocate for it because they say that um, this is what we can do with that data. So I think that moving forward, it's really important for those two views to be in conversation um, so that whatever the final outcome is, um, it's something that's uh, taken into consideration all of these uh, different uh, views that people have about data collection and how it actually informs uh, how system planning overall. Okay, and my last question um, is is really just to sort of tie all of the things that we've talked about and and to ask you, what are your hopes for how desegregated data is used and whether there are any resources that our listeners can can maybe look into, whether they're available online or not, that can help inform their own understanding of of this because um, because it is so critical to um, to a reflection of the truth of what's happening during COVID and beyond, and to help inform policymaking moving forward. You know, I just think about the fact that. Um, for me, when I look at what's been done with U.S. data, um, there's kind of two ways that the data has been used that I think have been really helpful. One is to communicate publicly about the existing phenomena. So um, because the data is so readily available and um there's no real barriers to accessing it. You have a lot of people who are doing a lot of work with it and they can do it quickly and they can be nimble with it. And so, you know, we knew about racial disparities in COVID very early on in the pandemic in the U.S. when we were just starting to get reports here um, that that sort of showed who was dying early on sort of anecdotally and starting to put together that indeed there there is likely to be the pattern that we we thought there would be and anyways those of us who do this kind of work thought there might be um so one is definitely using it for better public communication the second is to me um holding people accountable for differentiating when they express what is a fact versus a, an opinion or a thought so um, to me, again, this is why I don't necessarily think the data leads to policy in any predictable way, at least. But I do think the data helps us to understand where we are and what we're doing and when people speak, when politicians speak, when others speak, whether what they say is actually rooted in anything real or not. And I, the simplest example uh, I sort of think about the most sort of compelling example is actually during uh, Barack Obama's presidency, um, his administration often talked about the fact that uh, they have managed to reduce black unemployment. Uh, and if you, if you actually had the data and you could look at the data, indeed, black unemployment did go down uh, during uh, his tenure. Uh, however, it the the inequality between blacks and whites in unemployment did not budge the entire time. 
And so you need data to be able to understand the societal dynamics that are happening. So you need to be able to distinguish between what are declines, what are absolute declines or increases, what are inequalities, um, and what's affecting them. So to me, you know, I hope that the data becomes available so that we can understand things like that about our own society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, just listening to you talk make, reminds me of uh, a quote from Mariam Kaba, um, uh, who is uh, an American scholar, activist, thinker, many, many things. Um, and she often says, hope is a discipline. So Garima, when you asked, like, what gives hope? So I think that I'm thinking about this in terms of even how do we hold our leaders accountable over the long term? And how do we have the materials to be able to have this discipline to say what has happened here? This is what we want for our societies. And how do we get there? Um, and so I'm thinking a lot just about the, the, the data being a way that it helps us to have that hope and to have that discipline for building a better world in the long run. A very wow. abstract thought. But. No, no, I'm just, I am in awe and it, just smiling, just hearing you both um, speak and your reflections on on these really important issues and sort of thinking about how do we move forward and what we ought to think about. It's really my honor to have you both um, join us on Ontario Loud. And thank you so much for making the time. Um, and so folks, that's all for today. As a reminder, that was Sane Dubé, Policy and Government Relations Lead, Alliance for Healthier Communities, and Dr. Arjuman Siddiqui, Canada Research Chair in Population Health Equity, and Associate Professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. Ontario Loud is me, Karima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andri, Alvin Tajo, Chris Martin, and Alexi White. We are supported by our amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or ontarioloud.ca and click on the Patreon link. As always, thanks for listening.